Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now you talk about nerves in a finals moment sabrina ionescu who just hit a big three and came over to the side and lost the contents of her stomach told me that she gets nervous before remember that guy sure we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me one of your hosts james i'm gonna go ahead and toss this one of my teammates before i toss my cookies no concern about nerves here we are ready to go every single time but we do have a very special guest. It is the bucket that Sabrina Unescu had to throw up into. Please oh. introduce yourself. Oh, God. You know, as much as I love Sabrina, I, I don't want to be vomited on or in or around or any part of that. But it is still me, the very special guest, Xavier. Okay, they gave her a trash can. There's a bag liner in there and everything. We didn't make her settle for a bucket. Fair. I, I guess it's WNBA what is... used to be broke. They do have trash can money now. Well, I still don't want to be a trash can, so I'm going to just avoid that one. I'll be the guy who brought the trash can over to Sabrina to throw up in. Started from the bottom, now we've marginally increased to here. We have marginally increased to here, which is yet another episode of Remember That Guy, and I would love to kick this one off with what it is that is making memories for our non-trash can correspondent, Xavier. So I'm going to leave something of importance to James later. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about it long. You can talk about the finals. No, I was I wasn't I wasn't going to talk about it. Just good series. Aces are a incredible team. Brianna Stewart did not have a good playoffs, and you know when your best player in MVP has a bad playoff, you're not going to win against a team like the Aces, even as shorthanded as they were. Like they had the chance. Vandersloot had the corner three. If she got it up one second ahead of time. We would have had Jonquel Jones with the tip in at the buzzer. But, you know, it, it happens. This was a team together for the first time. The Liberty had not made the finals in decades. So, you know, they got good experience. Hopefully, you know, they can take this because the Aces are not going anywhere. They're going to be the favorite again next year. But I'm here for the super team era of the WNBA, and I'd love to see other teams do that too. And we know stars drive eyeballs. The more stars that the WNBA can promote, the more super teams that they can promote, the better it's going to be for the sport as a whole. So that'll be exciting. James, do you have thoughts on the, on the aces you want to say real quick? I mean, I'll just say that halfway through game four, I was dead certain that the Liberty were going to win the finals in five games. I'm not afraid to admit that what little faith that I had left, but I forgot that there is one thing that can carry us through much like the democratic party apparatus it turns out all of my happiness does depend on strong black women unlike the democratic party apparatus i will appropriately appreciate those strong black women that did deliver a back-to-back title to las vegas um but i mean the reason that vegas won is the year that asia wilson was draft eligible they had the number one overall pick it's as simple as that and it will continue to be as simple as that and here's the good news savior since my prediction that we made when free agency opened about aces in four was correct, 
I'm going to choose to interpret that as meaning that my prediction about the Liberty winning the 2024 title will also be correct. We can only hope, but uh, I want to talk about a little bit uh, more in women's sports. I had a great time watching the Arsenal women's game while doing the breast cancer walk with my mom last weekend. We're doing this charity walk, and because my mom walks very fast, I'm weaving in and out of people to catch up with her because she kind of just zooms forward while listening to this Arsenal game. Katie McCabe equalized her 92nd minute. Alessia Russo, winner in the 96th. Phenomenal game in front of 40,000 at the Emirates. And I just, Arsenal women are one of the best stories of what can happen when you support a women's team. And I just love to see them have success because they really are the standard bearer for what women's sports can be if it's given the opportunity to grow. And it's just very exciting. The other thing I wanted to briefly talk about, do either of you know what team in America's five major leagues, six major leagues I would count, but WNBA doesn't have enough teams to reach this threshold, what the longest playoff streak is? The longest playoff streak. So MLS then is the fifth. Yeah, I would count WNBA too, but no one has more than five, I think, in WNBA. I'm going to assume if you're saying big five, I feel like it has to be an MLS team because I feel like you wouldn't even be bringing the MLS up. Or sorry, MLS, not the MLS, like MLB. Um, I I feel like you wouldn't be bringing that up if that didn't have the answer. And that's a pretty good context clue to take from that because the answer is the New York Red Bulls. The Red Bulls have made the playoffs 13 years in a row, which is the longest streak. The second longest streak in any league is the Dodgers at 11. But Red Bulls, I've talked about them a little bit this year. Terrible start. Fired their coach, who was a racism apologist. Things were bad for a while. They got a little bit better under an interim. Then things got bad again. They lost three consecutive games at the end of August, beginning of September. And it looked like this streak is over. But in the past month, they've won three games, drawn two, only lost one in a game where they should have won. And due to a bunch of results going their way, we have decision day for MLS this weekend. There are currently five teams left alive for two spots in the Eastern Conference, five left alive for three spots in the Western Conference, and it's essentially a free-for-all. But as long as the Red Bulls win, they will make the playoffs for the 14th consecutive season in a thing that did not look likely at all for about 95% of the year. Not counting chickens before they hatch, especially having to go to Nashville to play against Nashville SC, but it would be a pretty great accomplishment for this team that has the fourth lowest payroll in MLS. No one over the designated player salary threshold, one of only two teams in MLS not to have a designated player over that threshold, and still under an interim coach. So it would be a great testament to the adaptability and resilience of the players and management to continue the streak under those circumstances. And fingers crossed they can make it happen. That just, first off, that seems very low. 13 seems like a low answer. And maybe that's because like the Red Wings had one that I think almost reached two decades relatively recently until they finally missed one. I know they had had the longest streak until they finally missed it. The, the longest streak until last year was the Penguins at 16 before they didn't make it last year. Okay, so they would have broken whatever Detroit's record was, presumably. And then they snapped it. And now, oh God, this is, 
Do I want Pittsburgh or New York to have that record worse? I'm going to say New York because it's specifically your Red Bulls, and I would like your Red Bulls to take that away from any Pittsburgh team. Yeah, I'm looking right now. The longest active NHL streak is Boston and Toronto tied at seven. The longest ever was Boston at 29. Uh, when they had like six teams, like that. Was for, like, this was from <laughs> this was from 68 through 96 for for the Bruins. Okay, they had like 12 that's, teams. That's yeah, that's kind of legit. That includes uh, most of the Canucks' existence. The longest active NBA streak is the Celtics at nine. The longest ever NBA streak is a tie between the Syracuse Nationals slash Philadelphia 76ers from 1950 to 1971, 22 years, and the San Antonio Spurs from 1998 to 2019. So those 22-year streaks are the longest. NFL, the longest active is the Chiefs at eight years, and the longest ever was the Patriots at 11 years, which... I guess shouldn't be surprising. The only surprising thing might be that it wasn't longer than 11 years. That, that was 2008. 2008 well, fucked could, everything up. Yeah, because it got broken up by a year in which they still went 11 and 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. The, it's 2009 to, to 2019 for that 11 year streak. And five years before that, if not that, it would have been a 17 year streak, which is double what anyone else has ever done. WNBA, Connecticut Sun at seven. And then baseball, current one, like I said, is the Dodgers at 11. The longest ever was the Braves at 14. Although that was broken up by the strike season. I, I disagree with saying that's broken up then. If there's not a playoffs, it doesn't count. Like, that's absurd. So, the, so Atlanta has a longer one, and we can deal with that later with Elias Sports Bureau. But in the meantime, thank you, Xavier, for bringing this to attention. I do want to support your New York Red Bulls. Yeah, I, I feel bad after being as glum as I was before the Aces did win. So go Red Bulls. <laughs> the, the, the Red Bulls are the only ethical New York team. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, Diaz, speaking of ethics, is there anything that is uh, ethically making memories for you right now? Or unethically? I don't know. Bad people can make memories too. Oil money. Well, if, if we had video, our users would see my profile for the entirety of <laughs> the podcast because... Well, I am very locked in and I'm very excited for this episode. I'm also, God damn it, Nick, very locked in <laughs> on my Phillies. Uh, Nick Castellanos just swung at a fastball way up out of the zone. Meta right now, this game. Why are we chasing these pitches? This pitcher fucking sucks. He's not hitting the zone and we're coming out like I think everybody is just trying to mash right now and trying to get out way ahead. And we're coming out too aggressive. We've swun and missed on, I think, four strikeout pitches outside of the zone now. It's very annoying. But the Phillies as a whole are fucking wonderful right now. Currently up 2-0 as we record during Game 3. And in my 30 years of sports fandom, I cannot remember a team that connected with the Philadelphia fan base in the way that this team has. The 2017 Eagles, great run. We were all loving them. But the way in which... This team feeds off of the fans and the fans encounter Gapper, 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 Gapper. Let's go. Gets two. That's three. That's going to be three. I think Brandon Marsh has a triple. He's going to pull in at second. He could have got three if he wanted to. But, ooh, okay, never mind. They threw it wild. He stayed at second. 
it all goes back to Alec Bohm's ovation. Because when you hear Philly fans ovation, now everybody, Trey Turner, obviously. And it is fantastic and it is incredible how he was the worst shortstop in baseball before he got the ovation. And he's been the best shortstop in baseball since he got the ovation. That's incredible. He's a top five player in baseball since he got the ovation. It's bonkers. Um, But it goes back to Alec Bohm's ovation. And as I wear my I fucking hate this place shirt, which is my lucky shirt for these playoffs, it all goes back to that. And I think what it really just shows is we just want you to be fucking accountable. The reason why the Phillies have the synergy with the city that they do right now is because when they fuck up, they are accountable for it. Alec Boehm says, yeah, I said it. Didn't mean it, but I said it. Trey Turner says, yes, I've sucked all year. We give him a standing ovation. If James Harden just gives a press conference and says, yo, my bad, I've been kind of an asshole all summer. I just want to play hard this year and win for the Sixers. He will get the biggest ovation in the history of the Wells Fargo Center. Just admit that you suck. That is all Philadelphia wants. If you suck, just admit it, and we will love you. And right now, the Phillies very much don't suck. Why are we fucking chasing high fastballs still? Um, <laughs> to be mo- fair, Brandon Thought throws outside of the zone very, very infrequently. And I can believe that if he's actually giving them that much of a diet of high fastballs, like it's re- you expect probably in the game plan, you're taking fastballs to look high because he's such an in the zone pitcher. I'm sorry to get into like the nitty gritty of that. No, of course. And I mean, it is, it's the thing, it's been high fastball. It was a low fastball. Bryson Stott, who has the best eye on the team, swung out a fastball that like, it was like a fucking Vlad Guerrero fastball where like it almost hopped before he swung at it. But look, we're not trying to get too meta about the individual game. Focusing big picture. Those are up to nothing as we record. Wherever this season ends up, I'm always going to remember this team. I can only compare them to the 0-1 Sixers in terms of the team city synergy. And as we record, we got six more topper. Let's get them. Even more so than uh, Big Dick Nick. Well, yeah, so when I talk specifically about the synergy and the way that the team feeds off the city and the city feeds off the team, I think with the 17 Eagles, the city absolutely fed off the team, but I don't necessarily think that the Uh, team drew inspiration from the city. I don't know, man. The dog masks felt pretty Philly. I don't think you do the dog masks in a lot of other cities, and I don't know if they win without the dog masks. Look, I'm an outsider. I'm saying that from an outside perspective. That's my take as an outsider. Of course. No, the dog masks were fantastic. And, you know, maybe I'm too much a prisoner of the moment right now, but you know, I, I fucking hate this place, but I fucking love this team. Speaking of foals, did you guys see friend of the pod, Ryan Nanny's repost about who would you could Freaky Friday with from the Eagles locker room? I just love the idea of Jordan Mailata just being like, yeah, I'd love, I'd want to be Nick Foles. Yeah. Nick Foles. There's no question that it would be Nick Foles. You're a massive human being. And you're like, no, I, I want to be Nick Foles. And I could be a backup quarterback that's like baseline, the top five most beloved athlete in that city. Foles, Foles is pretty close to the Mount Rushmore, probably. I don't know if he's quite on it. He's very close. He has a statue outside the stadium, so he's immortalized. Well, with that being said, James, what else is making memories for you other than the Aces? Yeah, no, between the Aces and the Phillies right now, I want to take us a little bit out of the moment. And I think I have just the thing to do that because I want to talk about 2028 for just a second. That is when the Summer Olympics will be coming to Los Angeles. And it is when we're going to have five sports that have not been in all of the recent programs that were announced this week are officially going to be in there. We've got two first-time appearances. 
One of them is squash and one is flag football. I'm really genuinely looking forward to flag football. I think that's going to be fucking bananas. So we got that. We do also have making returns. Uh, baseball, which has been in and out recently, was in Tokyo as well. And given that we're going from uh, baseball-loving Japan to baseball-loving America, they're sticking with that. They are bringing back cricket for the first time since 1900. And for the third time, but the first since 1908, its second year being held as an official medal sport, first being 1904, we are having lacrosse come back to the Olympics. And I've talked about lacrosse a little bit here before in reference to the 2022 World Games last year held in Birmingham, Alabama. But I want to talk about lacrosse a little bit longer, not just because I'm from Baltimore, but because it is a chance for sports to do something objectively good here. At the time when we talked about it in the World Games context of 2022, well, actually, let's back up. Let's give a little bit of history about lacrosse at the Olympics. It appeared in 1904. It appeared in 1908. And Canada won both times. In fact, I believe only four countries have participated. Canada, America, Great Britain, and Australia. America's got one silver. Canada has two gold and a bronze. Yes, they did get three medals in two games. I will get to that in one second. <laughs> and then, uh, Great Britain got one. Uh, Australia got a bronze. So 1908. Canada actually sent two teams. They sent one team that was just all good white guys at lacrosse. And then they sent one team staffed entirely by the Mohawk Nation, which is one of the nations that straddles the Canadian-American border on the East Coast. And it is part of the Iroquois Confederacy, more commonly referred to by members of those nations as the Haudenosaunee. Your First Nations people continued to have a presence in these Olympic exhibition games that they had with lacrosse. In the 30s, America and Canada both sent teams. Canada sent like a full national all-star team and America sent the Johns Hopkins University Blue Jays. <laughs> they, they just told the Blue Jays, yeah, man, get on a plane. You're going to go do that in Los Angeles. And at the time, there were a bunch of Iroquois nationals who competed in that. And then they have formed their own team also related to competition, though this was an NCAA competition in the early 80s. This is when the Iroquois Nationals then, now the Haudenosaunee Nationals, came together as a team. And it's built and built in terms of the recognition that they've gotten and just their standing. Uh, you know, they've produced some of the best players, given that they produced the sport. As we have crossed into the 21st century in 2006, they partnered with Nike. They've been able to get a lot better equipment and playing facilities. They have gotten to participate in more international competitions as a nation not under the banner of Canada, the way those Mohawk players did back in the 1900s. That's included, you know, the national games this last year. They've actually gotten the third place bronze medal in the last three World Lacrosse Championships, which have unsurprisingly been won by America and Canada. In fact, those are the only two teams to make the final since 1998. Just America and Canada every year, almost always America winning. But even if those two are going to win, if the Haudenosaunee were able to participate in the Olympics, they're instantly rocketed to a medal contender. Probably, you know, thinking about that bronze, but there's question about whether or not they'll be able to compete. The thing is that countries do not compete at the Olympics, technically. National Olympic committees do. There is a path, as long as people are cool and chill about it, international sports community, where an Olympic committee for the Haudenosaunee people can go and function here in the Olympics, can represent their people, can go ahead and try and medal. Some reports are like, oh, they'll have to, you know, send representatives for up to five different sports. I mean, they got women's and men's lacrosse down. I think you could probably find athletes that can compete in three others somewhere. 
So it's something that we'll be able to watch over the next several years, but it is something that really got me excited when the possibility presented itself. So hopefully that will be something that only gets more optimistic as we go forward. Hopefully in 2028, we will have some Native Americans in an American Olympics. That would be pretty dope. And that's what will be making memories for me soon. And I guess what's making memories for me now. Well, so it's, it's five sports that they had to compete in, right? And I like I don't know if men's and women's lacrosse would count as two separate ones. It counts. I, I think if... I'm almost certain it counts as two because like each sport for each category counts as one. Okay. I think I think their biggest issue is the fact that the IOC needs to recognize them as as an independent. Oh, uh, Olympic committee. Yeah, it needs yeah. to basically do what international lacrosse has done at this point. Like international federated lacrosse recognizes them allows them to compete like the world games. It was a problem. It had not been a problem with the world lacrosse championships for a couple years to that point where they have again, consistently been winning the bronze medal behind the greatest lacrosse player in the world right now, Austin Stotts. We don't need to get into that, but like I would like for him to get to play with Hono Shones, even if he might not be the greatest player in the world in five years, I want him to get to be on the Olympic stage. I mean, to me, the easiest thing is just take your fastest men's and women's lacrosse player, put a mission, in the hundred meter. They're going to get blown out, but like, just do it. Get um, someone just to do one of the riflery ones. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Y'all y'all can handle a gun. You're in the like borders of America still. It gets soaked into your bones by osmosis. A little 2A for everybody. Anyway, that I hope has helped us separate ourselves a little bit from the current moment, which will allow us to now look a little bit further back as we move forward into what we are gathered here to do today as the guy Bunel. Xavier, you were successful last week, and I would love for you to tell us what it is that we're about to dive into this particular week. So today, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about social media stars. This is guys whose social media presence outshone their actual athletic careers. Yeah, I do want to give a shout out to Ocho Cinco, who inspired this for me because I didn't care that much about Ocho Cinco when he was playing, but I think he's still he's too good to be a guy, so I didn't bring him for this. But his Twitter account is hilarious. He has become so much less of a divisive figure and just generally more likable, like a more popular person due to his Twitter account. And I love the idea of guys who although they might not have been the best at their sport, they're the best at talking about that and other things on social media. So I thought that'd be interesting, maybe a little, a little bit different than what we usually talk about. So shout out to Ocho Cinco. I also want to give a quick shout out to Keith Lee, who I almost talked about. I told the two of you that I was really having a difficult time because I just there's so many great options for this. Keith Lee was a former MMA fighter who during COVID, started doing family vlogging and then became a food reviewer on TikTok. And his like super positive food reviews have over 500 million views and cause like massive influxes of business to family owned shops. And he's just like a very positive guy. And I think it's really cool. And I would have talked about him if not for the one person I do really want to talk about today. This person, I think, is the best representation of this topic because Arcane Rules actually made him have to pick between two passions of sports and social media. Today, I want to talk about Donald Delahaye Jr., also known as D, 
or destroying. D was born on December 2nd, 1996 in Limon, Costa Rica. Uh, when he was seven, uh, his family immigrated to the U.S. and they settled in Port St. Lucie, Florida. He originally played soccer, and then during his freshman year, a friend convinced him to try out for football as a kicker, and he quickly became one of the best in the state. He got some scholarship offers from some smaller schools, but he decided that he wanted to walk on at UCF. He quickly became their kickoff specialist during his true freshman season and earned himself a scholarship. Ended up being like, Really just their their long-range specialist. They did bring him on for one extra point during his true freshman season, but mostly he was there for the kickoffs. But in the offseason, he was free to do his other passion, which was making videos. Before so, we get into his other passion, I just want to say for one second that this is an incredibly niche complaint, but the Baltimore City Public School high school football kicker landscape is so fucking dreadful. Like, it's a joke that no one in Baltimore City ever goes for one point. No one has anyone that can kick worth any fucking shit. And I always just screamed, I don't know why just they don't grab one person from the fucking soccer field next to the football field and just drag them over for one play or two a game. And I, I appreciate you with this guy basically confirming that I was right about that for all those years and that this is a thing that city schools could fix if they gave a shit about one-point conversions. Well, especially with Baltimore, you would think this is the city of Justin Tucker. You would think there would have been at least a couple kids who were inspired by him and said, hey, some chicks dig the long ball. Some people want to be the quarterback. I just want to boot the shit out of a football. Sure, there are people like that in the county public schools and in the Baltimore city and county private schools. That is fair. There aren't a lot of guys that look like me in Baltimore city public schools. Gotta find soccer players because D... By his junior season in high school, had already hit a 49-yarder in games and a 70-yarder in practice while also being the punter. But I digress. Back to UCF. Off-season after his freshman year, he is free to do his other passion of making videos. And he had made and edited videos ever since he was 13. Uh, one of the things he got his start on was downloading and editing Call of Duty uh, gameplay, like many young people getting into video editing. And he had always had this love because his dad was big into recording family moments. So his dad always had a camcorder around and was recording him ever since he was a kid. So only natural that he would get into videos. On May 11th, 2016, he uploads his first sports-related YouTube video under this new channel he created called Destroying. That's with two E's. This video was titled Football versus Football versus Rugby. And it showcased him doing a bunch of kicking challenges with a standard American football, a soccer ball, and a rugby ball. You know, with some hip hop music in the background. Nothing too fancy, but it was like impressive kicking challenges and people liked it. So he continued posting videos of his life as a kicker, life of college athletes in general. And meeting people like Matt Prater or Colin Kaepernick. And within a year, he had tens of thousands of subscribers and his videos regularly got views up to the hundreds of thousands. However, I don't know if you guys know this, but the NCAA hates fun. They specifically oh. hate when people profit from their labor. And in June of 2017, 
just 13 months after he started his channel, the UCF compliance department told him that he was not allowed to profit off his name, image, and likeness, and he either had to shut down his channel or quit college sports altogether. So to be clear, some of his most popular videos were shot at UCF facilities because that's where he had to be most of the time, but they had nothing to do with UCF football and they didn't use the school's name or logo in order to promote the videos. The videos were really just about his life and football in general, not like anything specific to the NCA or UCF. So as any YouTubers want to do, he posted a video on his channel titled Quit College Sports or Quit YouTube. He starts by saying, you know, quote, I guess I can't make any videos that make it obvious that I'm a student athlete because that makes it seem like I'm using my likeness and my image to make money in all this, which I'm really not. While he then gets dressed up for a meeting with the UCF compliance officer. Then cuts to after the meeting where a clearly dejected D says, basically, I'm not allowed to make any money off my YouTube videos. So I'm working hard, basically like a job, filming, editing, creating ideas, doing things of this sort, and I'm not allowed to make any money. If I do, then bad things happen. I just can't even think right now because I feel like they're making me pick between my passion and what I love to do, make videos, entertain, be creative, and my other passion, playing football. Dee tried to see if there was any way he could keep doing both, and the NCA eventually gives him an ultimatum that said he can continue playing football if he discontinued the destroying channel, which they said he had monetized his, quote, reputation, prestige, or ability as a student athlete, and instead created a second channel, which would only have, quote, non-athletic YouTube videos. That's not really much of a choice for someone who a lot of the things that he did were kicking challenges and other sports-related challenges. That, that's not really a choice. D didn't think it was much of a choice either. And he ultimately chose to continue the destroying channel and was stripped of his scholarship and athletic eligibility. With his scholarship gone, along with his place on the football team, he was not allowed to live in athlete housing or get athlete meals anymore, which he had relied on. And that meant he had to sleep on his best friend's sofa while continuing to go to school, figuring out how to pay for school now that he has all of these like increased costs but also find time to shoot videos because that's possibly the only way he can offset some of this. Quote, in the back of your mind, you're like, what if this just falls off? What if no one cares about my videos anymore? I thought, I can't just live off this for the rest of my life. So in the back of your head, you're scared and cautious, but you're still working. In 2018, D ends up suing UCF, claiming that the school violated his free speech rights. He said even after he offered to demonetize the YouTube channel, UCF, using the same language as the NCAA earlier, said that he wasn't allowed to post videos based on his athletics, reputation, prestige, or ability. I get that in a way, if it's possible that the school was also liable for sanctions from the NCAA. But aside from that, this seems like the easiest fucking free advertising the school could possibly have. Like, short of there being a legitimate threat of retribution by the NCAA taken against the school, which I'll completely assume is possible because fuck the NCAA. Like, short of that, why would you not want him broadcasting how dope UCF is? Don't worry, we, we will 100% get into that. that. That is a part of this story. Thankfully, 
both D and UCF settled this lawsuit in November of 2018, and they allowed him to finish his education there, came to an agreement where he could afford to do so, and he graduated shortly after. The good news for D is that his YouTube channel did continue to grow. It wasn't just a flash in the pan, and he started putting out videos that regularly got millions of views. There's actually one that's a diss track against the NCAA called Look at Me. That's just him trashing the NCAA for about three minutes, and it's very funny. He also continued to work on his kicking. In 2019, he attended an open tryout for the Toronto Argonauts of the CFL. He did it mostly for content, but they actually signed him to their practice squad because he was good enough. And it caused their own social media presence to blow up thanks to his followers. He appeared in some preseason action, but thanks to limits on American players on the roster and the low priority of kickers in the CFL, they really don't care about kickers at all for the most part in that league. He wasn't going to really see any game time. So instead of keeping him on the practice squad, uh, Toronto placed him on the suspended list for like purely financial reasons, which meant that he was allowed to continue making videos without having to deal with Canadian income restrictions uh, from being on the practice squad. After this experience, he goes back to the U.S. and he decides that he really wants to focus on building out his team, reinvesting his videos, adding extra cameras, hiring professional editors, and making the whole setup like as legit as possible. Meanwhile, as we know, there starts coming a push to allow athletes to monetize their name, image, and likeness. And D's case is one that's mentioned in nearly all of the press for these. The first domino falls in September of 2019 when California passes the first state NIL law, although it wasn't actually set to take effect until late 2023. That does obviously get pushed up. But then the next happens in June of 2020, when Florida becomes the second state to pass an NIL law, specifically citing D having to quit UCF and set their law to take effect just one year later in July of 2021 in order to force pressure on the NCAA to have to act now. One year later, June 21st of 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court rules in the Alston case that the NCAA cannot limit education-related benefits to athletes. This case didn't directly involve NIL or pay-for-play like at all, but it was essentially seen as a massive rebuke of the NCAA and essentially setting them up to have to deal with that in the future if they didn't make changes now. The court stated nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. Pretty good language. Uh, the, the math checks out. That's why this was a nine to nothing unanimous Supreme Court decision for a Supreme Court that is rarely unanimous on a lot of things. And two weeks later, the NCAA caves and college athletes around the country become able to monetize their NIL. In an ESPN article, Zach Soskin, who is a co-founder of an NIL firm, said of D, quote, there's an alternate world where he's a YouTube celebrity playing college football, and he could have been massive and brought a whole new audience of fans to UCF. A collective would have paid anything to get him because he could be the megaphone on YouTube for everything the school was doing, and that having someone like that on your roster is a great recruiting tool, 
because they allow your other players to get exposure, build their brand, build their audience. So like you were saying, James, if this happened now, they would be paying him millions because it's a perfect outlet for schools to get free marketing or enhanced marketing just from their players. It's the idea that I would, maybe I wouldn't expect the school to go to the mat for the player, but it would seem to be in the school's best interest when the NCAA pushes back on something for them to say, hey, actually, not only do I just want to stand up for my guy because he's my guy, we would like this person to be able to just do free shit for us and people love it. It would have, it would have been great for UCF if D could have done this. And maybe UCF should have pushed harder. Maybe they could have gotten these changes earlier if they were willing to back their player more. Maybe if he was a star wide receiver or star quarterback, they would have been more willing to do that. But they didn't, and D did have to leave. But overall, things worked out pretty well for him. And although he couldn't benefit from these NIL laws when he was in school, he's able to help other athletes benefit from it now. Because college universities love having D on campus to get views. Uh, Over the past couple of years, he's gone to UCLA, USC, Michigan, Jackson State. They usually have him like go and wear a full uniform, hang out with the players, create content with their players. So there's videos of him hanging out with Travis Hunter, uh, interviewing Caleb Williams. And he's also been informally advising college athletes about how to build their brand you know, to give them the opportunity to excel both at their sports and at building their brands in a way that he wasn't allowed to do. Even UCF reached out to have him come to campus and speak to their athletes, which must have been a very awkward phone call or email. One of the big things that, he, that he's been doing, one of his big series is called One-on-Ones, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's quarterback off-screen, focusing on one versus one receiver versus DB. And he goes like all around the country doing these. And the NFL loved this. The league wanted in, especially now that they have YouTube as a partner with Sunday ticket. So they reached out to D to host one-on-ones at different NFL training camps, at different stadiums, and that they would fund the whole thing. And it's been a massive hit for them. Eddie Capobianco, the NFL's vice president of culture marketing, said, quote, destroying is so credible to the game of football and sits perfectly at the intersection of content creation and the game. And he's right. Like, everybody loves these. It's a a great way to get people who might be more interested into the amateur aspect and just playing sports aspect into, like, actual, like, college football fandom or NFL fandom. And it's worked out really well. Just last week, He posted a video called, quote, he lost his tooth, then exposed them for 10K Philly one-on-ones, which might be the most Philly football video I've ever seen. And Diaz is required by law to watch it after we finish recording. It's so, it's so funny. The one thing I would, so I hope, and I'm sure he doesn't, but loyal Temple listeners, and I hope both of you remember Flips. I would love to see flips in this kind of competition because I'm sure he would fucking dominate. That would be very funny. But it, it just from the first 30 seconds of the video, you'd be like, yep, that's Philly. That is Philly. These videos are great. They're just a they're very hype, very exciting. And they're shot really well, too. Like from a like video standpoint, you could tell like it's a full professional outfit. 
the last thing I want to say as a comparison, in his college career, he was the kickoff specialist and had one point ever from one successful extra point they had him do before he got forced off of UCF's team. Right now, his destroying channel has 5.5 million subscribers with a total of 1.2 billion views. His secondary channel of more destroying has over 360,000 subs and 20 million more views. His TikTok has 4.5 million followers and 105 million likes, with each post having well over a million views. And then on Instagram, he's got over 2 million followers. He is just crushing it on every social media that exists. And he he did tweet a couple months ago something that I saw actually when it came out because Pat McAfee had, had retweeted it. Quote, this ain't a flex, but today I realized I make more money being a YouTuber than I would have being an NFL kicker. I think I might have made the right choice. I totally am in agreement with D on that. His content is really good. And it's just a shame that the NCAA through their very arcane rules that they had to fix, in part due to what they did to D, did not let him do both at the same time. But thankfully, at least he paved the way for others to you know, follow in his footsteps and is actively helping them do that now. I mean, I'll say at this time before Diaz does, we love guys uplifting other guys. It's, if, if there's any theme we come back to more than that, it's probably laughing at instances of 69 and 420. But after those two, it is probably guys uplifting guys. You took the words out of my mouth, James. I do apologize. I can put them back there if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're yours now. They're yours. They belong to you. <laughs> what if someone asks if they can borrow a drink or something? Yeah, you can just have that. Diaz, I'm deferring to your emotional state. If you think now is a better time than later might be. Let's do it now because the way that this game is cranking along, late innings, I'm probably going to be worse than I am now. There we go. So we'll go with the middle innings. You know, first I got to start with a confession. I slightly misinterpreted your prompt, Xavier. I took it as guys who were made bigger by social media than they actually were, not necessarily guys whose social media presence was bigger. So I think this still fits, though. And, yeah, I mean, I that still sounds fine. The social media has enhanced them in a way that just their actual, you know, athletic careers right. wouldn't have done. Right. Right. So, you know, with that caveat being stated up front, I got to take it back to when Papa Doc joined us uh, and he had a guest appearance in which he nominated John Wall for induction into the Hall of Guy. And, you know, this committee came to the decision that once John Wall is officially retired, no longer in the NBA, in that moment, John Wall will become a guy and will be inducted into our hall. But with that thought in mind, he did bring up a very important part of hoop culture that we haven't spoken about a ton on this podcast. And that's uh, the hoop mixtape. Hoop mixtapes are fantastic. They're just these tight little highlight packages, usually of high school players. And in a lot of ways, they can help to put players on the map. Obviously, John Wall had a fantastic mixtape. Austin Rivers is another player, had a great mixtape, but I think he falls into too good to guy almost if we're going strictly in this hoops mixtape vein. Uh, you also got guys like Seventh Woods, which is fantastic name, incredible player coming up. But given that his is 
the most viewed mixtape in the history of YouTube. I felt he was also a little too popular. But in that vein, there is one mixtape, and actually two mixtapes, that stand out to me above the rest. For this guy, his initial mixtape garnered 6.5 million views on YouTube, but it was the second one that came out during his junior year, which got 9.8 million views as of this recording. He is a legendary hooper in the Baltimore high school scene. So legendary, in fact, that his nickname was the Crime Stopper. Not because he's like Batman out here pulling all kinds of crazy shit, but because measurably and tangibly, the crime rate in the city of Baltimore fell during his high school games. Everybody's coming out to see him play. He's not very tall. I want to talk about a guy that would make Nate Robinson look tall. Akil Carr. We get to spend even more time in the Baltimore City Public School System, and I, for one, could not be happier. It's a great school system. It's produced a lot of great people, although you are much taller than Akil Carr. Although he might I'm be a little be better taller basketball. than any one basketball player. That's great to hear. <laughs> well, Akil Carr, he's like basically our age. He was born September 28, 1993 in Baltimore, Maryland. At first, his parents tried to homeschool him. But in what would have been his first grade equivalent year, they realized this isn't working out too hot. He's falling behind a little bit. Maybe we should put him in a real school. So after his quote unquote first grade year of being homeschooled, he enrolls in school for the first time as a first grader. So essentially repeating his first grade year, which does become relevant later in our story. And he enrolls in the Patterson School District. Basketball was an early love of his, and playing against older players, he's very used to being the shortest guy on the court, and because of that, he drew inspiration from another Baltimore legend who was diminutive in stature but great in talent, Muggsy Bogues. Uh, He would cite Muggsy Bogues as his primary influence on his game. By the time he got to high school, unfortunately, already done with his growing, uh, he only reached 5'6". He is generously listed at 5'7 in some places, but that is counting both his shoes and his hair. And the mixtapes, most importantly, list him at 5'6. So the mixtape never lies. We're going with the mixtape. The mixtape says he's 5'6. We say he's 5'6. And, you know, obviously he's used to playing against older competition from his time in the park. So he didn't have much of a learning curve and he kind of hits the ground rolling his freshman year. He's an immediate starter for Patterson. And, Early in the season, they have a December matchup against Digital Harbor, which was ranked fifth in the country at the time. Akil dominated this game, put up 20 points, 10 assists, and 6 steals to lead Patterson to the upset victory, 76-62. to This wasn't even his best performance of the year, though. They go against Clifton Heights, who is led by five-star recruit and number one prospect in the country per rivals, Josh Selby. Josh Selby is the point guard for Clifton Heights. So these two are matched up one-on-one the entire game. And Selby gets fucking cooked by Akil Carr the whole game. Puts up 39 points and 19 assists, which already sounds amazing. And then you need to remember, high school games are played on an eight-minute clock. So in 32 minutes of a total game, he's putting up 39 points and 19 assists. It is, it's funny that like per 36 always inflates your numbers a little bit. Per 36 really inflates your numbers when you don't play 36 minutes in a game. It's guaranteed to inflate your numbers. And again, that's even assuming he played the full 32. But 
puts up those crazy stats. They get the upset victory over Clifton Heights. And for his freshman season, he averages 25.5 points to go with 8 assists and 5.3 steals, uh, which is, to me, almost the most impressive part of that. Based on that freshman season, there's a lot of buzz flying around Baltimore and the online hoops community about Akil. And this led the Hoop Mixtape coming to Baltimore to film and release their first tape on him, which was entitled, 5'6", Akil Carr is the most exciting player in high school this year. Now, mixtapes can be prone to a little bit of hyperbole with their titles. I don't think it's hyperbole in this instance. The video runs just under two minutes, but you see Akil's entire array of skills on display. Obviously, a player his height, if they're going to be successful, they're going to have some sick handles. There's plenty of sick handles. There's in and out crosses. There's behind the backs. There's spins. There's all that stuff. But what really jumps off the screen to you is his insane athleticism. There's a couple of blocks that he gets at the rim in this video, but it ends with him at the Celtics practice facility for a private workout. He's coming down on a fast break one-on-one with the guy that's probably got about eight inches on him. And he gets up and just fucking yams on this dude. Stuffs him, like gives him a fucking wedgie on his way up, calls him a nerd, breaks his glasses, a, a dominant dunk. And the crazy thing is, according to anybody from the Baltimore basketball scene, This isn't even his dunk of the year. The dunk of the year, unfortunately, was not captured on video. But in the December 29th game against reigning two-way state champion City College High, which is the most generically named possible school. Also, fuck City. I'm sorry. We just need to be strictly on the record here. City College, eat shit, dump on the hump. Fuck City College. I, I have... When you just... Cram together three random words that can be associated with schools. I don't respect them either. So I know nothing about them. But fuck City, yes. But we have to respect City College in New York. Fuck the Baltimore one. We must respect the New York one. Yes, City College and Lincoln Corridor. Around the bench they stood. Uh, Akil Carr, however, was not on the bench when he delivered what came to be known as the dunk herd around Baltimore. They're going against City College High. And Akil Carr... Again, just like in that video from his first mixtape, he's coming down on a fast break against Maryland commit Nick Faust, uh, who stood a whole foot taller than him at six foot six. And he packs his shit in with a dunk. Again, unfortunately, no video exists of this dunk. But what we do know is it was just two of the 38 that he scored that night, including 15 in the fourth quarter and leading Patterson to an upset victory over the defending 2A state champs. This, however, is not even his signature performance of his sophomore year. That, without a doubt, has to be in the championship game of the Big Miller Christmas Classic. Patterson faces off with Forrest Park. Akil Carr sets the school record for points, dropping 57 with seven threes along the way, en route to a 103-71 victory for the year. Is is this still 32 minutes? It's These are still 32, 32 minutes. minutes. Oh. Yes, he posted 57 points in 32 minutes. His season averages, uh, they creep up a touch in points. He goes up to 31.3 points with 5.6 assists, four and a half steals. And he led Patterson to the 4A state championship game, which they unfortunately lost 76-72 to North Point. No strong feelings there. No, what about South Point? Yeah, fuck them. East Point? West Point? We love West Point. I know Xavier <laughs> loves West Point. No, the, the, uh, we don't like 
We're not crazy about Dunbar, but we respect Dunbar. We do not like City. That's about it. Fuck Calvert Hall, too. No Calvert Hall, to my best knowledge. But had this great sophomore season. And on the basis of this, he actually gets invited to play for the U.S. Junior National Team. The U.S. Junior National Team is going to compete in the Junior National Tournament in Italy. He averages 40 a game there en route to the championship. When he scores 45 in the championship game, the Italian fans stormed the court and took him off the court on their shoulders. He was so good that the other team's fans carried him off the court. Like, you thought Rocky Four was ridiculous when the Russians started chanting Rocky. No, this is proof that it can happen. Not only was he carried off the court by the Italian fans, an Italian club offered him 750000 after his sophomore year of high school to say, hey, forget about school, forget about that, come play for us right now. But he had unfinished business at Patterson, wanted to come back, get that state title. So he turns down the money, he goes back to Baltimore. That seems like, th- that, that's a tough decision to make, especially at that age. But turning down 750K as what, a 16-year-old? Seems 16, well, so, real, really tough. Well, so he was 17, because 17. again, the, the, the homeschooled year. So he's a okay. year ahead of his grade. I would have taken the money, Ben. You're already 17. Just go to Italy get your GED, and make a ton of money playing in Italy. He could have been a cult hero, but again, he had that unfinished business. And, you know, after freshman year, he had Baltimore's attention on him. He had the online hoops community's attention on him. Now he's got the world's attention is on him. And his high school games become a cultural event in Baltimore. The demand for tickets was so high that Patterson had to play eight of their home games at Morgan State in their gym. This, of course, led to the nickname The Crime Stopper. BPD data confirms that on nights that Patterson played, the crime was lower across the city, tangibly. This also led to Hoop Mixtape wanting to go back out to Baltimore and to film the second mixtape for him. Uh, this one opens with uh, him and his whole family on the stoop. He says, I'm a killed car. This is my hoop mixtape. And this is the one that gets 9.8 million views. It's a lot more of the same that you see in the first tape. There's a few more dunks. But what really stands out to me about this video is you see just how tangible the love is for Baltimore, for a killed car. There's several times where he like either crosses somebody up or dunks on somebody, gets a block, and it looks a lot more like it's a game at the Rucker than it is a high school game. Like, the fans coming on the court, no worries at all about stopping the game to dap them up. I, I would have hated to have been an official for one of these games. Uh, but I would have loved to be a spectator for one of them because, I mean, it truly is just a party atmosphere at all of his games. The previous year, they played for the Quad A Championship. This year, they're going to play for the 3A Championship, or compete in 3A, I should say. This, the school size caused them to be reclassified as a 3A school. They roll through this whole season. They get back to the state championship. Uh, they do, unfortunately, lose it again, in spite of Akil's 28 points and 8 assists in that championship game. Now, we're entering senior season. It's the third time. And then the Charm City will the third time be the Charm. But because of him repeating first grade, 
those damn academic eligibility rules come up. He turned 19 over the summer ahead of what would have been his senior year, which made him ineligible to compete in the Baltimore Public School League. So he instead enrolled at the Princeton Bay Academy and entered his senior year as the ninth-ranked point guard in the country per ESPN.com and the 50th-ranked prospect overall. There's no state championship to follow this year, but he does receive about 20, 25 scholarship offers, according to him, uh, and he would finally commit to Seton Hall. The key word there, though, is commit, not enroll. And this is where a series of poor decisions begins in Akil Carr's life. The first is the most prominent and fatal of all. Instead of going to Seton Hall or taking an opportunity to play professionally in China, Akil Carr made the horrific decision to align himself with the Sixers organization. The <laughs> Delaware 87ers drafted him in the third round of the G League draft, and he decided to go play for them. Plays well in his debut game. He puts up 15 points and two assists, but he's not really getting a ton of playing time. The, the G League can be very tough for younger players because it's usually filled of like... The G League is very much populated with like quad A players. So guys that are like in that maybe 26 to 30 range who are kind of just trying to stay ready for an NBA call. So, you know, he's obviously undersized. He's underage. And, you know, with that comes some kind of maturity issues as well. Uh, he only plays 14 minutes a game and unhappy with his playing time, he would request and be granted his release from the 87ers. Leading up to the NBA draft, he doesn't play in any other leagues, but he does declare for the NBA draft in which he goes undrafted and he also goes unsigned by any teams. When you flame out at the G League, that's kind of just like a very bad look for you as it looks towards NBA teams. I thought it was kind of bold of him to declare for the draft after that. I was like, oh, do you? <laughs> I, I have also declared for the NBA draft 12 <laughs> years in a row now, and I just don't know why I keep getting passed up. If you need a 5'11 guy with bad knees and a funny-looking three-point shot, I'm just sitting here waiting. Daryl mm -hmm. Morey. You've never been cut from a G League team. Or I've never been cut from the G League. But this leads to just the beginning of his nomad existence as a basketball player. First, he's going to go up to Canada, and he's going to play for the St. John Millrats. Then he goes to play for the Baltimore Hawks. Of course, the Beltway Bombers. We all know about the Beltway Bombers. Plays for Gearney University SK. Then goes back to the Baltimore Hawks again, and he currently plays for the Reading Rebels of the Basketball League. <laughs> just the Basketball League. It's just the Basketball League. And obviously it's a, a series of poor decisions that have kind of led Akil from being a burgeoning star in the mixtape era to, I mean, really, I feel like if he would have just went to Seton Hall and played there and lit up college basketball for a couple of years, he would have gotten a 10-day or something from somebody. He would have NBA minutes to his name. At the very least, NBA minutes. I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention some legal trouble that he had. While still playing high school ball in 2012, he was uh, arrested on charges of assault and reckless endangerment. They were ultimately dropped. And James, I'm going to cancel out my Baltimore pandering because I do need to let you know 
that in 2022, he was involved in a hit and run with a cyclist for which he faces multiple charges. The warrant has still not yet been served, although the charges have been filed. Actually aware of that one. Diaz, have you gone to akilcar.com yet? I have not gone to akilcar.com, though I do follow him on Instagram. Go, go to akilcar.com right now. Is it owned by Akil Car? It is not owned by Akil Car. I had a feeling. Akilcar.com. Car hit and run. <laughs> Akil Car yeah. hit and run. It is it redirects to the Instagram page. And it is uh, this account seems solely dedicated to spreading as much word as possible about the fact that Akil Car committed a hit and run. Let's see. It is the person this. who Akil Car hit in the hit and run. Who is still posting every week about it? That's deeply Baltimore. Uh, there's 46 posts on the account. It has one follower, and uh, the most recent seems to be a text message from Akil Carr to the person who he allegedly hit and run. I need to go to my phone to pull this up. Akil Carr official statement per this page is. Like, what is you doing, lady? Like, really, I'm definitely filing harassment charges. Why is you lying on my name like that? But I'll see you in court, like, really. I would encourage you all to go to that website. I mean, it is just, it's very funny because it's like infographics and like just random pictures. But this person really wants the word to get out that a keel car hit and run them. But again, they do have one follower. The pettiness of buying his name as a domain to link to your Instagram account to post this is phenomenal. I aspire to that. That is, that's just so great. It's an impressive level of pettiness. Maybe a little lacking in professionalism, but you know what? Akil Carr didn't have a ton of professional success either, so maybe they're even there. In spite of all that and how delightful that was to learn. Any true hoop head will tell you that it was truly a cultural moment when Akil Carr burst onto the scene. Uh, his mixtapes were much must watch. And while he may have committed some crimes himself, I would argue that based on his reputation as the crime stopper, his net impact on crime in Baltimore has been positive if we utilize a utilitarian view of the world. And I hope that that positive impact on crime and that positive impact on the sport of basketball is maybe enough to earn him the title of guy. I'm surprised you didn't add on to that, that you think it would be a crime for us to omit him, thereby adding to the net crime altogether. I also didn't realize the wordplay that he hit and run with his car, and he mm -hmm. is also a heel car. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was because it was his birthday that he did not stop. Right. Yeah. So he did stop. And then, like, he said, like, it's my birthday. I'm sorry. It's my birthday. And then he drove off. And then had his passenger... <laughs> He had his passenger come back with a phone, gave the phone to the person, said, hey, the guy who hit you wants to talk to you. And so they talked to him on the phone, took a picture of the phone number and used that to find out who it was. Insanity. Don't hit people with cars when you're... <laughs> I mean, just don't, don't hit people, hit people with people cars, period. Bikes when you're driving. Especially bikes. Also, don't hit people with cars when you're biking. I, I would say it's reciprocal, but I think that one of those can cause more damage than the other. So, but in general, no vehicular collisions. Speaking of damage, as we lead into our third guy today, I just want to take a moment to pour some out for Twitter. 
it is still in its slow death spiral. At some point, we're all going to get charged a dollar to use it. And I can guarantee you, we, we have a final day that we will have a Twitter now. And it is the day that we have to pay a dollar to use it. But it was such a wonderful thing to have in sports recently as a way to follow along and interact with community in real time while sharing it. And as a way to like connect with the people that announce games, that cover them for broadcasting, and the people that play in them. I mean, like we, we've had a great year here at the show where we've gotten to bring on some awesome guests that because you can shoot a message to someone's DMs and sometimes they respond to you. Most of the time they don't, but sometimes they do and they come on your podcast and it's awesome. And that's something that we're going to miss. But I'm glad, Xavier, that you've chosen this category at this time when we can at least remiss before we miss it about some of the guys that made that special. And the guy that I would like to select today, I think is one of the most Twitter athletes that has existed. I do want to talk about Biz Nasty himself, Paul Biznet. Love me some Biz Nasty. So he is a bit of a melting pot himself. He grew up in Welland, Ontario. He was born there March 11th, 1985 to parents Yolanda and Cam. Uh, Yolanda is uh, half black, and so Paul Biznet is a quarter black. He's pretty white passing. There's something to know about him. And he also was French-Canadian, despite growing up there in Ontario, near Toronto, where he was a diehard Maple Leafs fan growing up. Despite all that, he was attending French-language schools all the way up until the seventh grade. And he is, of course, picking up the sport of hockey this whole time. When he turned 16, he is drafted 31st overall into the Ontario Hockey League, the OHL. So he goes to the North Bay Sentinels in 2001. In 57 games, gets three goals, three assists. He is a winger. He's a forward. He is not a big scorer. And that will kind of continue on. Uh, the Centennials, they moved to Saginaw. And now they're the Saginaw Spirit. And he does at this point get named co-captain. And despite still not being a particularly productive player, he's a very well-respected player. And, and people kind of know he is going to go somewhere here. There is uh, there is something in 2003 called the Home Hardware Top Prospects game. It <laughs> is a game of like CHL and NHL prospects they get split into like teams that are being managed by old legends so he's on team or and he is named the player of the game for that team he gets a goal and he also gets into a fight with Dion Phaneuf which kind of hints at what he is going to be doing largely as he continues to play hockey that game mostly existed to help people build up their draft stock gets drafted in 2003 fourth round 121st overall it is unfortunately to the Pittsburgh Penguins but he stays with the Spirit initially, so he's still there in the OHL for a while longer. Uh, while he's co-captain, he's actually traded from the Spirit. Finishes out that one last year in 2005 with the Owen Sound Attack. It's the OHL team that he finishes with. But now it is time for him to become a pro. And after the 2004 lockout, he hops into the ECHL, the Eastern Coast Hockey League, with the Wheeling Nailers in the Pittsburgh organization. And for most of the next few years, he is going to split between there and the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins of the AHL, both feeding into Pittsburgh. He is, I mean, like, it takes him over a year to score his first professional goal. That is not what he's here for. What he is getting, though, in Wilkes-Barre Scranton is a different kind of education. Because he gets to play with a couple guys during this time. Derek Engeland, a really, really big fighter from this period. One of, like, the really last great fighters that we have. Because this is something that we'll see during Bizanet's career, like something that kind of fades away as he's doing it. But Derek England's there, helping him train. Even 
better than that. He has Dennis Bonvi, who is, we've talked about Ty Domi here before. Dennis Bonvi is one of the two people that has more penalty minutes than Ty Domi because he has the most all time. So these are like the two guys that he is just some AHL goon is getting to kind of like learn under as he's also, you know, being named an ECHL all-star. Like he's a good hockey player, but not necessarily going to crack a team for his play, more for what he can do with them fists. Heading into the 2008-2009 season, Pittsburgh decides that those fists are good enough to make a spot on the team. He does not play a lot during this. He is in 15 games and plays for a total of 53 minutes across those 15 games while he is with the Penguins. So it doesn't really catch on there. Does get 22 penalty minutes during that time. So is still doing you know, what you expect from him. And he does get his very first fight. It's in a game against Washington. And he knocks Matt Bradley to the ice so badly that he bloodies his nose in his very first fight. This is his third professional game that he is appearing in. You know, maybe not even double-digit number of shifts at this point as a pro. And he just absolutely decks Bradley. And does get a point still at one point while he is here. I is one of, you know, a couple dozen that he will have by the end of his career. But most of the rest of the year, he is going to go back into the AHL because he's just not quite cutting it. Though... He does get a cut in AHL, I should mention. Gets a very, very bad cut at one point playing Hershey Bears from a skate. Not quite clip Malarchuk level because it's to his arm and not his neck. But it's pretty bad. Uh, it does like affect the nerves in his left wrist for the rest of his career. And so he is now injured on top of being kind of disappointing. And so Pittsburgh decides, okay, we are truly just going to cut bait. So he's dropped and claimed off waivers by the Phoenix Coyotes. This is when. Phoenix is at its absolute nadir as a franchise. Like, we can talk about whether desert hockey teams should exist in the first place. It is kind of insane that we have two of them now, three if you want to count Dallas, plus all of Southern California. But the Arizona Coyotes, the Phoenix Coyotes still at this point, are the most, like, just kind of pointless franchise that exists in hockey right now. And it's not necessarily (laughs) their fault. They were moved there, and ownership was always a problem. This is right after the NHL has had to take over ownership of the team itself. So it's currently an NHL-owned team when he gets there. The one good thing is, sounds like the kind of place where Paul Bizonet can get a little bit more ice time. Now, I do say a little bit more. Gets in 41 games this time. He appears in 240 total minutes during all that. So he's still only 552 time on ice anytime he's actually making it into the game, which he's only doing about half the time. He does manage to get a career-high 117 penalty minutes during all that time. So he still knows what he's about here. So it's you know a good way to kind of exist with this Coyotes team that is pretty impressive in 2009-2010 for their standards. They had had a little bit of a run of success when they first moved from Winnipeg, but it had been years since they even finished above fourth place. in that. And that was, by the way, while Wayne Gretzky was their coach. But now... Dave Tippett has come in. You know, the number one person you want to replace Wayne Gretzky in any situation. And they do bow out in the first round. But they make the playoffs. They've got Bisnet. It's a fun time to be a Phoenix Coyotes fan. And Paul Bisnet, in particular, is having fun in the locker room. You don't stick around if you are this quote-unquote bad if you're also a bad hang. So, like, you know that Paul Bisnet has to be just a, a fun dude to be around. And a lot of his friends are saying that while he's here in the locker room in Phoenix. And in particular, one of them recommends, hey man, you should start talking on uh, this one website, Twitter. I think people would enjoy your musings on there. This is 2010, so it's four years roughly after Twitter got founded. In August of 2010, 
he thinks back to his time when he was playing in the ECHL and the AHL. He had a teammate from Halifax, and they would go out drinking four times a week. And while he was out drinking and just being an absolute buffoon, his friend would call him Biz Nasty all the time. So Biz <laughs> Na- claims the Twitter handle Biz Nasty and begins his saga just kind of tweeting from the bench. And there are other hockey accounts at this point. I believe Stromboni won semi-anonymous until it wasn't anymore account that existed for a while is, is out there. Maybe it was still anonymous at this time. And other athletes are on there, but there is some freedom afforded to Paul Bizanet by being an athlete who, and I mean this with all the love in the world for him, doesn't matter too much to the grand scheme of the games that are going on. He can just kind of exist. And then afterwards, he can just kind of report on it, frankly, because who kind of cares what the fourth line left winger from the Phoenix Coyotes is saying, uh, except for the couple thousand people that start following here on Twitter. This is also at a time where the NHL is dealing with some issues. It's still in the fallout of that lockout in 2004. And Gary Bettman is struggling with the fact that no one wants to play in the All-Star game. The All-Star game kind of sucks. He actually has to like threaten to find people who will skip it. So this is the year that they're going to like have everyone go in as a pool and then select the couple top vote-getting stars to pick fantasy teams. And it all sounds pretty dumb. And one particular user on Twitter during this season, Leafs get to Varys. And this was in 2010. So this guy had some prescience to him, it being eight years before the Leafs would eventually get to Varus. I hope that he didn't lose faith in those eight years. But anyway, the other faith that he wanted to place was faith in Paul Bizanet. He basically organizes something he tries to call vote for Biz Nasty. Hashtag vote number four, Biz Nasty. The burgeoning online hockey community rallies behind Paul Bizanet to try and get him as a write-in to the All-Star game. Uh, I love fan votes on anything. They're either the most creative thing, get this goon to the All-Star game, or name something Facey McFacey or something like that. And like, this is not the first time we've talked about the silliness of this. Of course, you know, our very first ban was because Mehmet Okor rode the internet power of Central and Eastern Europe to a spot over the much more deserving Marcus Camby. And to be clear, this is a very fun campaign. A lot of people have a good time with it. The top vote getters, uh, it, well, here, I'll start with Paul Bizanet's total. Paul Bizanet gets about like 24,000 total fan votes. That's pretty respectful because while he is one of Twitter's most followed athletes at this time, this is just to, to really give you a time capsule about where Twitter was at. He, when this all happened, as one of the most followed athletes on Twitter, had 15,736 followers. Those were the days. It was pure. It was pure and it was good. Sidney Crosby gets like 650,000. Uh, so Paul Bizanet does not make the all-star game, but it is like this very kind of beautiful thing. And he does kind of become this cult hero who continues to exist as Biz Nasty. And it, it helps that the Coyotes are fun for a little bit that year. They do once again bow out of the playoffs in the first round, but this is now two straight playoff appearances. They haven't done that since the 98, 99 and 99, 2000 season. So it's a good time. We're warming up. We got rookies like Oliver Ekman Larson, and we've got a two year extension for Paul Bizanet here in Arizona. In the 2011 2012 season, Coyotes start slow. You know, hadn't been any preseason expectations for this team, really. They were at best probably going to be another first round exit. They trade away Ilya Brizgalov. But what we do have coming out of the All Star break is an incredible run. This team had been 22, 21, and 8 as they exited the All-Star break. They win 
11 of their next 13. The end of the season on April 7th, after a little bit of a slide, but fighting back, they have a 4-1 win over the Minnesota Wild, which gives them a five-game win streak to end the season and their first and to date only Pacific Division Championship. While there's some highlights for them, there's one highlight we want to focus on just a little bit earlier in the season before we move on to their playoffs. There were not, you know, a lot of goal-scored moments for Paul Bizanet. In fact, there was only one the entire season. On November 19th, 2011, Paul Bizanet, he's actually, because they're in Buffalo, against Sabres, playing in front of his mother and grandparents for the first time as an NHL player. The Coyotes do fall behind quickly, 2-0 the Sabres, battle back, and then eventually, late in the second period, Paul Bizanet nets a goal to go up 3-2 that does end up being the eventual game-winning goal over the Sabres <laughs> in front of his family, and it is the only goal he scores that entire season. Wild pitch. Harper <laughs> came in the score. That's all we you mean? almost blew that fucking inning. Oh my god. Congra- congratulations, Diaz. But I want to hear more about Paul yeah, Bizanet. I, 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 apo- I apologize for coming. No, 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 dude, you're that, was, that, was a, that was a visceral reaction. Arizona Coyotes punch their tickets in the playoffs. Once they make the playoffs, decide they don't want to exit the first round this time. They actually, in seven games, do manage to take out the Chicago hockey team. They go on to play the National Predators. They decide, you know what? Winning a round, that was pretty fun. Let's go again. And then they run into in the Western Conference Finals. The Los Angeles Kings, the only eight seed to have ever made it at this point to a conference finals because they were the first ever eight seed to beat a number one seed. In the first round, that was, of course, the two-time President's Cup winning. We don't have to talk about it, James. Vancouver Canucks. Hey, I got to acknowledge it. I got to acknowledge it. That's how the Kings got there. And the Kings are the ones that defeat the Coyotes to advance to the Stanley Cup, which they win. After this, the next year, you've got the lockout start the season. Do you want to guess the foreign league that Paul Biznet goes to? You know, many players go to foreign leagues. They go to Russia. I'm assuming it's going to be something interesting, so... Slovenia. Okay, Slovenia, Diaz? I did go on Wikipedia. Oh. But my, my guess would have been, like, Mexico? He goes to the Elite Ice Hockey League, which is in Britain, and he plays for the Welsh Cardiff Devils. You know, there's worse places to go than, than Cardiff to hang out for a couple months. Sure. And, uh, like, honestly, some of the best games of Paul Bizanet's life. In 10 games, he scores six goals and 19 points. <laughs> just go, I can just picture him beating the crap out of a bunch of Welshmen, being like, yep, I feel great right now. Well, I do love that it's just, like, it's a reminder to you that it's, like, it's like that, like that Brian Scalabrini thing, where, like, he went up to, like, some guys who thought they were hot shit at the Y. He's like, I'm closer to LeBron than you are to me. Yeah. And these poor Welshmen that had to experience what an actual NHL player is like. And I, what I also most appreciated is looking at it, and Cardiff only had eight penalty minutes in those 11 games. When he like is just better, I'm not going to resort to the violence. He, I can just be better, I'll be better. He learned the violence in order to develop a skill. Like He was taught that violence by experts, and he was taught well. But that was not what he came up with. That was just what he needed to do to survive. He knew what his place was, and he... Goes back to his place in Phoenix after this. And, you know, that season is another perfectly fine. We're not looking for production from Paul Bizanet. It does end up being, like, one of his worst ones in terms of total ice time. He only plays 152 minutes, of course, because it's a shortened season. Uh, but during that time, absolutely zero goals. 
six assists. That's cool. It's the most assists he'd ever had at that point. But altogether, pretty boring. And then we get to the next season, 2013-2014. Phoenix had missed the playoffs the year before. They once again missed the playoffs this year. And Dave Tippett is going to last a little bit longer. But they recognize now, like, we're bottoming out a little bit. And so they start cutting some chaff. And after the 2013-2014 season, they do decide that some of that chaff is named Paul Bizonet. Ooh. Uh, yeah, yeah. We don't like them for that. We do like the St. Louis Blues for giving him a training camp invitation. He does get cut after that training camp. Goes back to Wales for a little bit. Hangs out with the Devils again. You know, with the team while still trying to find an NHL call. You know, really struggling at this point. He's talked about this. He was actually encouraged to turn his Twitter account off for a while by his agent. Because some teams might see it as a liability. Again, crazy that they would see it that way. Just like it's crazy that UCF and the NCAA would see a really charismatic player on YouTube being a bad thing. Like you should want this fun Twitter personality to get free advertising for your team. Goes back to the Coyotes organization where he's playing with their AHL team for a little bit, gets cut from them too. There's no hope. There's no glimmer, except it is darkest before the dawn. The Kings, I guess really liked what they saw from Paul Bizonet in that one Western conference finals, because they signed him to a tryout with the Manchester Monarchs in New Hampshire. Why the fuck they had an AHL team in Manchester, New Hampshire for the Los Angeles Kings, I'll never know. And it is their last year as the AHL affiliate. Like, everyone knows that this is going to be the last season for the Manchester Monarch. They sign Bizonet to an AHL contract for the rest of the season. And they go on to face the Utica Comets in the Calder Cup. The Utica Comets, of course, the AHL affiliate for the Vancouver Canucks which does make it all the more devastating when the Kings AHL affiliate does get their first ever championship in their last ever season by defeating the Utica Comets in five games. Why do you do this to yourself, James? This is just, this is I just, this is, this is that when I found him, I just think he's funny. This on is Twitter. sadistic or masochistic. <laughs> whatever. I can't remember which one that would be. It's a little bit of both. Let's be honest. Um, with, this, I mean, so he sticks around with the Kings organization. He goes like the Ontario Reign, which becomes a new AHL one. Because Ontario, significantly closer to Los Angeles. Stupid organization. Sticks around with them for like two years, but he's not getting an NHL call. And I think he kind of finally realizes that. I don't think it should shock anybody that in 2017, when he decides it is time to hang it up, he does announce that on social media. Now he announces on his Instagram account. He did get the handle Biz Nasty there as well. And he, at this point, had rejoined Twitter as BizNasty 2.0. But what he is more interested in joining at this point is the media world. You know, he has gotten such a big following already from Twitter and from being this kind of cult hero that he can very easily leap into having a post-playing career still around the sport. And so initially, he joins the Coyotes radio booth. He's one of their color commentators there. He is, he has a thing called Biz Nasty Does BC. Basically, he gets like a bunch of different hockey players that he knows and does different, just fun stuff around British Columbia. The big thing, though, that he does that most people probably know him for in the podcast world is he does join Barstool Sports, who uh, I must continue to acknowledge I have a visceral hatred of since they made fun of me for my Jeopardy appearance. He joins Ryan Whitney. He played with him in Pittsburgh. Ryan Whitney at the point had already had a podcast called Spittin' Chicklets. And he was doing fine. He was doing like the 30,000 to 50,000 numbers weekly, according to him. And that increases by tenfold when Paul Bizonet comes on because he just has this massive audience that he brings right on into the show. Surprise, 
Turns out that's a really good thing to just have like a giant built-in audience. Maybe teams should have paid attention to that. Uh, but Ryan Whitney does. And so Paul Bizonette becomes a more or less permanent part of the show. They've put out a vodka for that now. And uh, he's got CBD, so he's got all of the different substances covered. <laughs> but the thing that is craziest to me about Paul Bizonette is Paul Bizonette was so good on Twitter that he now, as like an analyst for NHL and TNT, sits next to Wayne Gretzky. Paul Bizonette played in 187 games altogether. Wayne Gretzky has five different seasons where he finishes with more than 187 points. And they're just hanging out together. It's I like there are no words. It's just fucking insane that Paul Bizonette gets to hang out with Wayne fucking Gretzky on NHL and TNT all the time now because he's really good at Twitter. Pat McAfee is just lucky that the NFL is a more popular sport in America than NHL because Biz Nasty <laughs> is do Biz Nasty did it first. Biz Nasty did it first and Biz Nasty did it better. I just, it's a story that's so of the moment that it's happening in because, I mean, we said it there in that first year. He was talking 15,000 fans, and that was enough to be the guy on Twitter for hockey. You, you wonder if he came in even a couple years later, would he have been able to get any of that kind of penetration because would other players have just kind of already crowded out that space and other better players who had more name recognition built in without being the Twitter guy? Would he have been able to stick around with the Coyotes if they hadn't been such a just... They almost get relocated to Winnipeg before Atlanta does. There is a city council vote at one point during Bizonette's run that basically because of that Stanley Cup finals run, of which he is a huge glue guy part of, they probably don't remain in Glendale anymore. This was not a foregone conclusion by any means. And now, with the impending death of Twitter there's not going to be anyone that can kind of recreate that. I'm sure people will find new paths to the kind of career that Paul Bizonette had, but only Paul Bizonette could have Paul Bizonette's career. And he just is my guy today. I've got no fun, quippy thing to wrap it up with. I just really like Paul Bizonette. I think we all like Paul Bizonette. Thank you for that wonderful presentation on him, James, because I mean, I know of the Twitter account and spit and chicklets and everything, but I have to admit, I wasn't as familiar with his actual playing career, which is one of the reasons why he's so great to talk about. But that that was really fun. I love Biz Nasty. That's like that early error. Uh, I guess Twitter was ultimately an error, but <laughs> that early era of Twitter, you know, you had Biz Nasty. I remember Logan Morrison, mm -hmm. uh, baseball player had a social media following that similarly outpaced his ability. But, you know, in its, in its infant days, I believe that's truly what social media was for. Just let's, let's show what the personality is actually of these people. And yeah, biz nasty, certainly one of the most fun. I'll wrap one last thing. Out. Just a couple numbers to sum up biz nasty. Like I said, 187 games altogether. Only 1,018 minutes in all that. So he's playing less than five and a half minutes in every single game for his career. In that five and a half minutes, he manages a total of 352 hits, 318 penalty minutes, and 21 total points, seven of which are goals. And now he sits next to fucking Wayne Gretzky, like, every single night. But that's Biz Nasty 
let's get down to the nasty business of determining which one of these three is going to spread their social media tendrils into the galleries of our hall. I mean, I'll say right now that I'm already leaning either Biz Nasty. Yeah, I, I really like Biz Nasty. I, I, I like destroying a lot because I like, as you said, guys lifting up other guys and being one of the catalysts for college athletes to be able to monetize doing the things that he did. I'm kind of like between the two, but I think I am currently leaning towards Biz Nasty just because everybody knows the Biz Nasty account, or they should. They should know what Paul Bissonnette has done on social media. I think it's probably a little more mainstream than Destroying's like accounts, which I think might be more targeted for like younger audiences. Well, not younger audiences, but more like early 20s, late teens, stuff like that. I do like them both. I'd love to hear what Diaz is thinking when he's not watching the Phillies game. Well, I, he is still watching watch. the Phillies game. James, what are you thinking? What? What the fuck? Well, now I need to see what this reaction is to. Okay, so it was a grounder right back to Alvarado. And the second he got it, I was like, okay, we're out of the inning. And then the screen just went black. And that's why I had to take my headphone out because I realized there was still audio. And then I heard, over to Harper and the Phils get out of it. So Okay, okay. Okay, so false alarm, so, false alarm. Diaz is still alive, listeners. He has not died yet. So, you know, you got about two minutes of uninterrupted Diaz attention right now until the top of the eighth. Look, I think we came up with three great entries for this one. I do love destroying. I didn't even realize until, like, you said that was what his uh, YouTube name was. Like, I watch those one-on-ones all the fucking time. Those are fantastic. And obviously, as a hoop pilled person myself, I do love a keel car. But what really separates it for me between a keel and Biz Nasty is, to my knowledge, Biz Nasty has not hit and run anybody. He has hit and skate many people, but he has not hit and run anybody. Ooh, that's uh, that's a good point. So if a keel car had hit someone while driving over, say, a frozen lake, we'd be on equal footing here. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, in that case, I mean, Biz Nasty, the numbers still way favor him if it was only one. But sure, but we'd we'd have a conversation. There would be a conversation. Yeah. In 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 the words of the Charles Barkley meme, we're going to have a conversation. conversation. We're going to have a conversation. Um, I uh, the the thing about D that I keep coming to, just to keep being a dead horse, like we are all about a rising tide that lifts all ships. That being said, like, it feels like he's more of a guy that managed to go viral that, like, I I know that it's about the sports, but it's more like he managed to do that and then also played sports on the side, whereas Paul Bizanet, like, made the day-to-day life of an athlete his social media presence. Like, not constructive things that are cool to watch that are absolutely dope. Like this isn't me, you know, attacking these content in the slightest, but it is crafted and created content and curated too, to throw another C word out there. Whereas Bizanet is just unfiltered dude talking shit from the locker room of uh, a pretty miserable franchise. It makes me think of like the, the what's the book that, was written about the 1969 nice Seattle pilot season. 
ball for it. Um, yeah, I, I get you. I get you on that, James. And I, I, I am still leaning towards Biz Nasty, but I do just want to clarify for D for future reference and for people like who are listening. His early videos before the NCA forced him out were Camp Chronicles, Cutball Bowl Game Experience. Okay. Okay. It's a lot. It was a lot of, there like I said, it was, a, it, it was a lot of like the day to day life of being a college athlete. It wasn't tailored to UCF specifically because it was just like his life, but it was because he was a student athlete and it was his student athlete experience that he wasn't able to monetize it and it became his, his issue. Okay. That does that. That is good to know. And I will, a keel car is from Baltimore. Which is pretty strong. That's a strong argument. He is from Baltimore. It's a charming argument. It's a charming argument. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I'm glad to, to hear that I have won the two of you over seemingly to the guy that I want. Yeah, I'm not going to push any further on that. I, I like D, but I knew you were going Paul Bissonnet, like from the beginning, and I was fully prepared to vote for him from the start. Just got to, you know, give a good account of my guy who I also really loved. Yeah, you're D's what's? D's attorney. <laughs> I'm a zealous advocate. Well, uh, we need not advocate any longer. What we do need to do is appreciate and honor. Well, look, Xavier is a zealous advocate, but we're not worried about Z to A. We're worried about going A to Z. We want to cover all our bases with each of these guys. And as a thanker, Xavier, you'll get there. But. <laughs> And as we now enter its death stage, I think one of the things that we most appreciated about Twitter at its best was just the ability to run with like a good bit and to engage people and to bring people in. And Paul Bizanet, while he may have been a bit of an agitator on the ice, he certainly was not an agitator with his social media presence. And the fact that he basically carries making some jokes on Twitter into sitting next to the goat every single night really just speaks to the quality of guy that he is. And that is why we must induct him into our hall of guy. Welcome biz nasty, Paul Bizanet, Paul Albert Bizanet to the hall of guy. And I didn't even have to play the quarter race card for the argument for him. The quarter uh, rounds up to a half and a half rounds up to full. That's how I do the math. There you go. But no, congratulations to Paul Bizanet and to us for getting through another one of these. We don't want to keep you all too much longer. DS and baseball to watch, but we do appreciate the time that you've chosen to spend with us today. Please, as always, feel free to follow us on social media. That isn't Twitter, because again, I fucking hate being on there. Um, but I am trying very hard to keep all of our guys today going on Blue Sky and find us there. We got Remember That Guy there. We didn't have to go for some fake thing. And you can also catch all that stuff on the Discord as well. Everything is kept at bit.ly slash Remember That Guy. All one word, all lowercase. Thank you, of course, to producer Craig and all the coders behind him, to our musical director, Don Ham for our lovely theme music, and to you, dear listener, for joining us once again, which we hope you will Choose to do next week, Diaz. Let's get one last check-in on the Phillies before we head out here. Johan Rojas up the middle of the pitcher. He's going to get him at first. That'll do it for the top of the eighth. It's 1-1. I'm really glad we're up 2-0 and it's not 1-1. I would be dying if it was 1-1 right now. 2-0, it's like mild anxiety. We're like a 6 on the anxiety scale right now. But uh, That's mild? Dude, I get fuck. I'm a fucking nutcase when I'm watching sports. You know, come on. 
I know, that's what I'm saying. Six seems pretty moderate to me. I guess it depends. To me, moderate would be like seven. So seven is, is one through six like or nothing, and then There's seven below four? <laughs> one, one through four is my day-to-day life. <laughs> it's the baseline. Exactly. One through four, day-to-day life. Four to six, mild. Seven, moderate. Eight and nine, high. Ten, sixers in the playoffs. <laughs> Well, until the Sixers make it to the playoffs again, I will remain James. And I will remain the very special guest, Xavier. I'm still Diaz. And as Jimmy Dugan once said, there's no guy in baseball. Dan Isonia fucking sucks, dude. What the fuck? Side note. Why the fuck are they pulling fat? This is the dumbest decision I've ever seen the Diamondbacks. I, like, he's pushing. We're not fucking touching him. And they pulled him. I don't get it. Oh, uh, no. We're not watching Diaz, so we have to just trust you to inform us what's going on. Uh, They're dumb as shit. Yeah, and no, one gets, no one goes more than twice the lineup now. It's the Blake Snell rule. I, it's just... I fucking hate analytics. Uh, but I love it in this current instance as a Phillies fan, especially because the guy just went fucking 3-0 to Schwarber. Schwarber probably has a green light.